As we continue to journey through the topic of nonviolence and loving our enemies, it's important for us to understand that Jesus' teachings are a central part of his announcement that the long-awaited messianic kingdom was actually breaking into history in his person and work. This means that we cannot just ignore what Jesus teaches and what he lives and go back to the teachings of the Old Testament law for our guidance on what the Christian faith looks like. This is actually common for many. We get confused about what Jesus teaches compared to what the Old Testament teaches. We merge together the teachings of each side that we like, and we tend to ignore the teachings that we don't like. This is why in the first sermon of this series, I spent time showing you how many Jews in Jesus' time were waiting expectantly for the Messiah who would drive out the Romans, make Jerusalem the center of the world, and bring in an age of peace and justice. I also showed you how the messianic hope in no way implied the end of space-time history, that the apocalyptic language about a new heaven and earth was rather vivid, symbolic imagery to declaring that the coming Messiah would actually bring dynamic, sweeping transformation. Jesus' claim to be, he claimed to literally be the expected Messiah, but as we looked at last week, his actions seemed to point to a profoundly different strategy than what was expected. A non-violent messianic strategy, actually, rather than a conquering Messiah, Jesus was a suffering Messiah who chose the cross over a military campaign. Jesus called on the entire Jewish people to embrace his messianic message and work. He didn't in any way see himself as starting a small private circle of followers. Instead, he was calling on all of Israel to be Israel, to step up and become the salt of the earth and the light of the world, Matthew 5, 13 to 14. This meant that accepting Jesus as the Messiah means we're to follow his teachings. And he actually directly tells us that if we're wise, we would follow his teachings. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says this, Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on a solid rock. So if we're wise to follow his teachings, we need to spend some time exploring what he teaches in detail and in context. This is what I want to focus on for the next couple weeks. What exactly does Jesus teach his followers to do? And what type of person does he call his followers to be right now, here within this messed up world? Essentially, what is the sweeping transformation that Jesus calls us to as the church? In scripture, we have four accounts of Jesus' teachings, and then in the rest of the New Testament, we have the results of how his disciples passed on what Jesus taught and how they lived what he taught them. So today I want to spend some time focusing on Jesus' largest section of teaching. It's found in Matthew's Gospel, and many of us know it as his famous Sermon on the Mount. 
But first, before we go there, there's something that we need to clear up. It's important and it's fundamental to actually helping us understand the complexities of how Scripture actually works. How we differentiate between the teachings of the Old Testament, which is the Jewish Scriptures, and the New Testament teachings of Jesus and his disciples. In other words, we have to talk a bit about the Old Testament law and how Jesus says that he fulfills that law. Now, I know that most Christians understand that Jesus fulfills the laws of Moses, but I'm not convinced that all Christians understand that when they're actually reading Scripture. Because of that fulfillment, that language, it actually changes how we are to read the narrative. You see, often, we look at the Bible as a book of ethical rules that we can search for the answers of what God allows and what God doesn't allow. For example, maybe your son or your daughter or somebody you know wants to get a tattoo and you're against them getting one. And so you're going to turn to your Bible for the answer. And lo and behold, in Leviticus 19, verse 28, it literally says not to tattoo your body. It even ends with the sentence, thus saith, or thus says the Lord. So now it's like big time. But is that how it actually works? Do we need to learn to search the Bible for specific topics in order to shape our ethics? It doesn't matter what part of the Bible it's in. If you find it, it's biblical, right? Now, some of you would say yes to that and others would say no. Some would say that's an Old Covenant text that no longer applies to us, and others would say all of Scripture is binding and that it's all equal and we need to live as biblical as possible. So what's actually going on here? Well, the answer actually lies in what Scripture says about the Messiah and what he does within the redemptive process of the narrative. You see, the Bible is a story a moving narrative about God and his creation, specifically from Genesis chapter 3 onward, it's what we call a redemptive narrative. It's all about God in the process of redeeming his creation, redeeming his people to him. In the Old Testament, which simply means Old Covenant, God implements the law, a way he has designed to meet people where they're at, a system that tells people how to become right with God, it's a structured system, it has a lot of structure attached to it, that people genuinely actually struggled to live. The people know the law, but they struggle to live the law. That's the setting that we see in the entire Old Testament and the early part of the New Testament. It's the setting that Jesus was born into. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says something that is really important, and it helps us, to, helps us with this question about using Leviticus as the guide for our lives. It helps us uh, to know, do we turn to Levitical law in order to say whether something's biblical or not, to say whether we can do it or not. If you turn very quickly to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, listen to what Jesus says teaching us about the law. He says, don't misunderstand why I have come. In other words, people would misunderstand why he has come. And I actually think today people misunderstand why he came. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish 
their purpose. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, now you need to listen. When Jesus gives a teaching and we kind of make an assumption of what we think it means, but then he stops and he says, but I warn you, you need to listen very closely. He says, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this passage is important if we're going to understand how to learn anything from Jesus' teachings and how to read our Bibles as Christians instead of Jews. Now, first, Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law or like my Bible says, to accomplish the purpose of the law. That's a really good translation, to accomplish the purpose of the law. That's why he came. Jesus came to accomplish the purpose of the law. This, this is extremely important because up to this point, the law has failed at accomplishing its purpose. So keep that thought in the back of your mind. Now, if you think about it, Jesus saying that no one detail of the law will disappear is kind of weird, especially when we read the Sermon on the Mount, because it seems to contradict itself. Within his teachings, you'll notice Jesus constantly says this phrase, you have heard, but I say. This is where it all kind of gets confusing for many Christians, and it's exactly why some focus on Jesus' teachings and others focus on the teachings of the Old Covenant and often they don't even actually realize that they do. In the world of biblical scholarship, there are two answers to the question, how did Jesus fulfill the law? There's actually no debate around whether he did fulfill the law or not, just the how. And one side says that Jesus doesn't set aside any of the Old Testament law or teachings. He merely corrected misunderstandings of the Old Testament held by some of his contemporaries. Now, the other way of thinking, and this is actually the more, uh, more popular way with the scholars, says that Jesus fulfilled parts of the Old Testament precisely by setting aside some of its provisions and calling his disciples to a new kingdom of God reality. I actually think that many Christians today would believe kind of variations of each of these reasons. But the problem with that is it actually distorts our understanding of Jesus and how he accomplishes the purpose of the law. Because this is the key thing here. Jesus said he came to accomplish the purpose of the law. And the purpose of the law was to pave a way for people to become right with God. And then once right with God, a way to live a life that honors God and shows him to the world around us. Now, since the Bible is redemptively, a redemptively moving narrative, meaning the story about how God brings humanity back into right relationship with, the, with him, what we're seeing in Jesus' teachings is a shift in how the law works in our lives, how it accomplishes what it was actually intended to do. It's the beginning of the Messianic era, the ushering in of the kingdom of God, and Jesus is now our Savior. And it's through him that we are made right with God. 
Now, this is important because in the Old Testament, the people chose to have a worldly king, just like all the other nations. You can go back to the book of Judges at the very end. You see, they rejected God as their king and they chose to be like everyone else. So when we read his teachings in his Sermon on the Mount, we must read it in the context of our king. It's kind of like our king is teaching us how to live a righteous life in his newly established kingdom. Instead of a worldly king, Jesus returns us to a life under his lordship. Now, this is exactly what it says in Matthew 5, verse 20. He gives us a warning that the law we now live under is better than that of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees. It needs to be better because it's God's kingdom. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, essentially, when you see those different phrases, they're the same thing within the gospel. It's just Matthew uses kingdom of heaven language, but it means the same thing. He's not speaking of a future kingdom in this passage. He's talking about the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in right now. This means that it's Jesus' teachings that we follow as Christians, and we read the Old Testament text within this new Jesus as Lord context. The New Testament, as I'll show you over the next few weeks, clearly teaches that Jesus has the authority to challenge widely understood demands of the law. And it's clear that the early Christians teach that, that, that central demands of the Old Testament law are no longer binding. You know, things like circumcision, food laws, sacrifices in the temple, forgiveness of sins, or even topics like the Sabbath. All of these things are laws in the Old Testament that Jesus says and the early church says no longer apply because Jesus is now our King. Paul says that although the law is divinely given custodian or guardian applicable until the coming of Christ now, he says we're no longer under a guardian. You find that in Galatians 3, chapter 25. So essentially the answer is, is actually simple. Christians follow Jesus and Jesus teaches us about how the law applies to our lives today in his newly established role as our king. And the Sermon on the Mount is going to help us understand how the purpose of the law is lived out in our lives within this kingdom. So let's dive into some of these teachings just to get a taste of what I'm talking about. And then we'll focus on our topic of nonviolence and turning the other cheek and how that actually fits into all of this. In chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, starting at verse 21, Jesus begins a string of teachings to show us the difference between the law and the kingdom. In the theological world, we call this section of the Sermon, the sermon on the Mount, the six antitheses. Antitheses simply means, I really struggle with that word, it simply means exact opposite. We see this all over his teachings. If we're to read Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 21, Here's that phrase. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit, commit murder, you're subject to judgment. Now here's the next part of the phrase. But I say, so you've heard this, don't murder. Then you've heard, but I say, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, 
you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Now, Jesus says not only is murder wrong, but being angry with someone is equally a problem. His reason? Because we should always be seeking reconciliation with others. Lots of us can hold off murder, but can we be transformed into the kind of person that doesn't even get angry? Well, according to Jesus, kingdom people can. Those who live with Jesus as their Lord. Now, it's interesting because Jesus continues this way of teaching. If we jump down to Matthew 5, verse 27, here's that phrase again. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, in this passage, he does the same thing. In your worldly kingdom, the kingdom that we rule under the law, many of you could stay away from committing adultery, but can you change how you actually look at women in general? Because in the kingdom of God, how you view women matters, and it's with respect and dignity, not as a possession. Now, he does the same thing with this when it comes to divorce, saying that the law allows giving a certificate of divorce. But Jesus says this is not how God created us or how he created marriage. So in God's kingdom, your commitment to relationships actually needs to mean something. Now, let's jump down to a passage that deals directly with our topic of loving our enemies and nonviolence. If we jump to verse 38, chapter 5, verse 38, he says a similar thing. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, now listen to this very closely, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. So here is a shift. The law, the Old Testament says that people get what they deserve. An eye for an eye. But Jesus says this is not the way of kingdom people. That was the way you lived when someone else was your king. But when Jesus is your Lord, he says you do not resist an evil person. Now, this is a huge statement when you know the meaning behind the original Greek language. The word that we actually translate in most of our texts is for do not resist is in the original text is a military based word. It's used 71 times in scripture, and 44 of those times, it's directly talking about armed resistance in military encounters. So this word in the original language means more than just resist. It means to resist violently, to revolt or rebel, to engage in some type of insurrection. So listen to what Jesus is actually saying. He's saying, don't use violence to resist evil. But notice something. He still tells us to resist evil, just not with violence. 
This means his instructions to not resist an evil person. It's not passive, it's actually active. We resist, but in a very different way. The passage tells us how, and in each case, the response is neither violent nor passive. Jesus tells us to not turn aside passively or to hit back, but rather to confront evil with nonviolence by doing more than what the oppressor requires. This bears witness to God's kingdom. Think about it. it. It sure isn't what the person who just hit you would expect. They would naturally expect you to react and hit them back. But when Jesus is your Lord, you think differently and you choose to represent the kingdom by turning the other cheek, walking the extra mile, offering your shirt along with your coat. Now, this is extremely countercultural and it's very different than what the Old Testament law teaches. But guess what? The law didn't accomplish what it set out to do. So Jesus is helping us learn to accomplish what our kingdom couldn't, peace. Now, if we go down to uh, verse 43 in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 43, he's going to continue this radical teaching. He says, you have heard the law. So he's again referencing back to the law and what it says. And it says to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Now that's interesting, because if we jump over to the Beatitudes, in verse 9 of chapter 5, he said, God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. He directly links our love for our enemies as evidence that we are true children of God. Jesus calls us to love our neighbor, but in this teaching, also, it, it also says to love our enemies as well. Now that's really radical, but this is exactly the type of transformation the kingdom of God calls us to. Even our enemies are human beings made in the image of God. So rather than lash out them at them, why not offer reconciliation and love? After all, the other option, all of those options have been lived out since the fall and none of them have worked. War, violence, hate, and retaliation historically has never actually brought us true freedom. All of those things were permitted in the Old Testament law, but that law was not able to accomplish its purpose. So when Jesus comes into the scene, the redemptive story moves into its next phase. Now this movement is important because the law fell short. We couldn't do it under our own kingdoms. But with Jesus' call of lordship and the power and presence of his Holy Spirit living in us, we can be empowered to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies, and show the world that the kingdom of God is different than any human kingdom. You see, if God's people simply respond to evil with evil by killing others, we'll never be free. Instead, we're stuck in the same cycle of sin as everyone else, constantly building up our armies in fear of another attack. This, folks, is not freedom. You're not free if you're constantly worrying about another attack, so much so that you need to build up your armies. 
This is why Jesus shifts the focus of the law. He moves it into a kingdom-minded perspective. And it's the invitation to live your life in the kingdom of God with Jesus as your Lord that accomplishes what the law could not. We are called to live like Jesus, to be like Jesus and to learn from him about this kingdom life. In John's gospel, Jesus says in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says to baptize those who believe, but also to teach them everything that he commands. So to teach this Sermon on the Mount. It's wise, he says, to follow the teachings of Jesus because his teachings lead us into the presence of God, into his kingdom here on earth, and they change the way that we think of the world around us. You see, earthly kingdoms choose war and violence as the path to freedom. God's kingdom chooses to love and resist evil in ways that lead others toward God, not ways that make us like the rest of the world. He calls us to take up our cross, to be willing to suffer and to live life trusting in the Father's promise of a freedom that no war could ever accomplish. Next week, we're going to continue to learn from Jesus' teachings, moving into other areas of the gospel narrative. And I hope that you'll soon start to see just how dominant Jesus' teachings are about God's kingdom being a kingdom of peace and reconciliation here on earth. And so we, if we are to live in his kingdom, if we are to follow his ways, we have to learn from his behaviors and we have to learn from his teachings. And Jesus clearly teaches us to not kill, to turn the other cheek, and to love our enemies. We're going to keep unpacking that, though. There's a lot more to it. This is just grazing the surface. And so we're going to keep unpacking this as we move along. But I'm going to turn you over to Tamil as we begin to practice what we preach. The teachings of Jesus are totally countercultural. They were in the world that Jesus lived in 2,000 years ago, and they are in our world today. Jesus teaches us that life in his kingdom isn't defined by following a bunch of laws and keeping in line with a series of checks and balances. God wants to transform us from the inside out to be people who represent his love and his peace, even in situations where it seems impossible. This isn't something that we can do by trying really hard. It's the kind of thing that we need God's Spirit to do in us as we open ourselves up to Him. In Matthew 5, verse 44, Jesus tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Praying for our enemies is the first step to letting God change our hearts towards others. Earlier in our service, we spent some time praying for some of the people that we care about. That was easy. That comes naturally to us. As we wrap up this morning, we're going to take Jesus' words seriously and spend some time praying for the people that we find difficult to love. So take a minute to think about somebody that you might consider an enemy. Somebody you don't understand or agree with, someone you don't like, someone who hasn't treated you well. And start by naming before God the things that bother you about this person. It's okay, he already knows. He wants us to be honest with him. So let yourself be real with God about why you struggle to love them.
Now, name before God all of the things that you appreciate or admire about the person that you're praying for. We believe that every person is made in the image of God, so ask God to help you see this person through His eyes. How do they reflect God's image? Now ask God to bless the person you're praying for, to bless them in their relationships, in their work, in their health, to bless them with a deep sense of His love. Pray for God's kingdom to come in the life of the person you find most difficult to love. Let's close this morning with the peace prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there's darkness, light. Where there's sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it's in giving that we receive, it's in pardoning that we're pardoned, and it's in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.